Good evening, everybody. <laughs> My name's Phil Rodriguez. I'm a principal security solutions architect for AWS based in Sydney, Australia. And I'm joined by my colleague, Miles. Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Hosford. I'm based out of Singapore, and I'm part of the financial services um, security compliance team. Life is all about choices. You had a choice right now to be at the pub crawl downstairs, or you had a choice to come to this talk. You chose to come to this talk, and I thank you. <laughs> Uh, it's great to be back in Vegas again, especially as a, a US expat living overseas. So, so great to be back and great to be here at reInvent 2018. Uh, what we want to do today is we want to talk you through the most common security questions that our customers ask us. But I wanted to start off with one of our favorite quotes and we're going to end with one of our favorite quotes. So this one is, at AWS security is job zero. And I'm really proud to work for a company that focuses so heavily on security and understands that especially in the cloud, it's our most important and top priority, which is another way we say it sometimes. What does job zero mean? It means it's there at the start of any other task list. Before we get to number one on that list, we think about number zero, which is security, and it's always first. Now, Miles and I talk to a lot of customers about security, it's what we do. And over the last few years, we've talked to hundreds of customers around the world around AWS cloud security. And over that period of time, patterns emerge. Patterns of curiosity and patterns of trust as customers ask us both how AWS keeps the underlying infrastructure itself secure and customers especially ask us nowadays what they need to be doing in order to be running secure applications on top of us. And this talk today is pretty straightforward. It's a summary of the top questions that customers ask us and our answers back around those, those questions from the simplest, most straightforward questions that we get all the way to the most complex. It's a 200 level talk, so we're gonna be broad today and not too deep, because we're only gonna spend a couple minutes on each of these topics and go through 13 of these questions. So I use some kind of lighthearted uh, terms today when we're talking. The title is uh, Myths That Are Dispelled, and a little later I'm gonna talk about myths that are busted, but don't take that the wrong way. We understand that these are very serious questions that we get, and they're behind your organization's big decisions around whether or not to move into public cloud or what kind of security controls that you should be applying to your most critical workloads and oftentimes your most sensitive data. Um, and we see patterns as customers go on this cloud maturity journey that align to the type of questions that they ask us about security and the types of answers that we give. So the first stage of questions that we get are for customers that are relatively new to the cloud or maybe from business teams rather than risk teams. Uh, who have some fundamental questions about just the basics of cloud security. The next type of questions that we get are from teams that are experienced with cloud and maybe specific IT teams, maybe sometimes security teams. And these are more specific questions about services that we run and how we keep those services themselves secure. And then finally, especially from very large customers and oftentimes regulated customers that have a really serious focus on data security and data privacy, uh, they ask some very specific in-depth questions around how we're helping to keep those two things secure. And those are the kind of questions that usually come to security specialists like myself or, or Miles, and that's what we're gonna end the talk with today. So again, very straightforward uh, uh, method. I'm gonna ask a question to Miles, he's gonna answer it, he's gonna ask a question back to me, so let's start off with the first one. Cool. 
Okay, Miles, uh, the first question that people will ask us, just sort of at the basics, is you know, they've been used to working in other environments that they had more direct control over, and they're concerned that probably maybe the public cloud's not as secure as they were used to on-premises. Okay, thanks, Phil. So when I talk to customers that are really new on their journey to AWS about this, when they have maybe um, misconceived ideas of how AWS works, I like to focus on two main things. First of all, what are they already familiar with? And then secondly, what are the unique benefits of moving to AWS? So what are they familiar with? Well, the global infrastructure that runs AWS um, is comprised of regions, which are geographic areas in the world where we have data centers. And we make those data centers available to you in the form of a construct called an availability zone. So you can use multiple availability zones to create highly available and fault tolerant uh, applications. Now the data centers that make up these availability zones implement the same controls that you are already familiar with. So we have things like perimeter security, we have robust surveillance, logging and monitoring of these facilities. From an access control perspective, only authorized individuals that have an appropriate business case can enter the facilities and their access is revoked and reviewed um, in a timely manner. Now, one of the challenges of a traditional environment is that there is a low degree of automation and a lack of visibility in most cases. And these two kind of security benefits are really core to a lot of the myths that we'll be busting today and some unique properties of using AWS. So when you do use AWS, you have deep insight and into the visibility and events in your environment. Thank you, Phil. You have, your, you have deep visibility into the events in your environment, and you have the ability to automatically remediate and respond to these events. So let's take an example. Let's say that one of your network engineers or cloud engineers started making configuration changes to a virtual private cloud or your network. Maybe they changed a firewall rule or a security group. Maybe they modified a subnet or a route table and exposed the service to the internet. All of that sort of activity would be logged and could be stored indefinitely and made directly available to your security teams in real time. So if your security team has this information in real time, they have the ability to kind of automatically respond and fix things. So if the security group exposed a particular port to the internet, maybe Telnet or FTP, or some other insecure clear text protocols, your security team can write code using Lambda to automatically close the security group. So you've detected it in near real time, you've also fixed it, and then you can even take that one step further and revoke the access of the individual who performed it to really reduce the, or reduce the damage to your environment. So reduce the blast radius. So visibility and automation are key to a lot of what we'll talk about today, and you'll hear a lot about it in the myths going forward. So Phil, when new customers move to the cloud, they often have questions around data ownership and data location. What do you say to those? Thanks, Miles. AWS has a really straightforward policy around who owns and controls customer content. You do. AWS will not access or move your customer content without your explicit percent, uh, consent. For example, we'll never use that information for advertising or for marketing purposes. Now, when you choose to put your content into an AWS region, you're also choosing the type of storage that you want to keep it on. And these decisions are very important because, again, combined with that policy, we're not going to move it out of that region without your specific consent. And this is how we comply with data sovereignty laws in all of the countries around the world, especially those countries where we have regions present. 
So in addition to this clear policy around AWS not accessing or uh, uh, using your customer content in, in a way without your permission, we also have tools that allow you to give very strict permissions around which of your users are able to interact with that, with those, that data and those systems. So our identity and access management platform allows you to create users and groups uh, and assign different forms of permissions so that you can have really granular control around who you do want to have access to that data and which types of access they want to have and which other services you want to allow to interact with your data. In addition to this uh, protective control around the identity and access management, we also provide a lot of detective control specific to this. For example, the most common that we're going to talk a few times today is, is CloudTrail, which is our ubiquitous API logging system which is going to record activity inside of your environment in AWS between users and groups, between those users and different services, and between different services and each other. So this combination of our clear policy around you staying in control of your customer content and owning your customer content, you choosing the region where you're going to be putting your data, and AWS not moving that without your consent, you having the ability to write very strict permissions around which of your users you want to get to interact with that data, and the visibility by logging the activity related to access to the data is all a com combined way to give you really high confidence around how your data is being used. Okay, Miles, myth number three. Uh, some customers, especially customers that work in regulated businesses, feel that because they have a specific compliance problem or a specific compliance requirement that they can't use the cloud. Okay, thanks, Phil. So AWS currently has millions of monthly active customers, and these customers come from all sorts of industry verticals. Um, if you think about things like financial services, healthcare, and the public sector, these verticals are very often really, really highly regulated. They have strict regulatory requirements, and our customers that are regulated like this need to demonstrate to their regulators that they are following the best practices and implementing appropriate controls. So how do we help them? So AWS certifies our platform with over 50 certifications and alignments and frameworks. We do that globally, but we also, where we need to, we'll do it regionally. So if I can give you some examples, at a global level, our platform is certified with things like ISO 27001 and SOC 1 and 2. And even at a global level, within the verticals, we do things like PCI DSS to certify the platform to have the ability to process and store credit card data and allow you as customers to build PCI compliant applications on top of us. Now, from a regional perspective, in the US, for example, we align with things like FISMA and FedRAMP. In the UK, um, we've aligned with things like Cyber Essentials. And then in Australia, we certified the platform with IRAP. Those are just some examples. We've also included many, many more. Now, when we certify the platform, we use an independent third-party auditor. So they will, they will perform an audit, write the report, and then we make those reports available to you as our customers via a service called AWS Artifact. So if any of you are interested in finding out more about security of the cloud and what AWS does, you can go into the Artifact service and download things like our SOC 2 report, which will give you a really detailed description of the controls that we implement, like the ones I described earlier around physical security and the activities that we are responsible for. So you can use that as part of your due diligence to identify what controls that we have and then what you need to build on top of the platform. Now, finally, AWS customers have the ability to enroll in an enterprise agreement. This agreement is tailored specifically to you as a customer. So if there is any unique needs that we need to discuss with you, enterprise agreements is often an option. Phil, 
many customers, after talking about data ownership and data location, sometimes want to know about data sensitivity and the encryption options available. For them. Sure, you got it. Thanks, Miles. Uh, this is all about encryption. And I love to talk to customers about our encryption services for a couple different reasons. The first is that they're very widely available through many different services and features on top of the platform right now. So this allows you to build applications that are gonna be critical to your business, that can be handling sensitive or personal information while making use of industry best practices around data of encryption at rest, as is written to disk, and for example, encryption in transit as it's flowing through the network between various services. So in many cases, we're gonna offer this by default within the uh, 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 service and as options that you can select in order to enable encryption inside of that service. And this is often as simple as just a single click. For example, inside of our Amazon S3 storage or our Amazon EBS block attached storage connected to our virtualized compute, both of these have single click encryption options to be doing encryption at rest with keys that we're managing. Now, if you want more controls over the keys that you want to create or that you want to be managing and just making decisions around how you want to be using those keys to interact with it, then we recommend that you use our key management service, or KMS. KMS is awesome for a couple reasons. One of those is it's uh, available pre-integrated into over 45 different AWS services. And that number keeps growing every year by leaps and bounds. It's gone just plus 10 in the last over the course of 2018. Uh, KMS allows you to manage these keys. And what does that mean? You can create a key, you can import a key, you can delete a key, you can revoke a key, and especially you're in control of assigning permissions for who can be interacting with that key. And actions taken with that key between users and when that key is used to encrypt or decrypt data are logged again, and those logs are made available to you. It's a fully managed service, which means we do the physical security, we keep the hardware up, we keep the service accessible, and all you need to worry about is just those decisions around who can be accessing that key and how you want to use that key to encrypt and decrypt data. Now, our KMS service has been validated to the US federal government's NIST standard, I'm sorry, FIPS, of 140-2 level two. Uh, and we have another single tenant hardware security module service called Cloud HSM which has been validated at FIPS 140-2 level three. Uh, this is a very high level of assurance that especially helps our US federally regulated customers and actually many customers around the world that have to interact with any government or requirements to understand the deep security requirements that we are maintaining around these hardware security modules. Again, so you can just focus on the encryption needs that you have. Okay, Miles, number five, the last one for this section. Um, some customers have a requirement for security testing, which is great, um, but they're concerned because of our terms of service that they're not able to really do that in the cloud. How would you talk about that? Okay, great. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I love this one. Prior to AWS in a past life, I was a penetration tester, and I think penetration testing and security testing is a really important mechanism or a control that you can use as customers to ensure that your applications and your infrastructure that runs on AWS is safe and secure from vulnerabilities. So before I talk about the security testing options available to you, I just want to go back and discuss the shared responsibility model. So the way that we operate the cloud is, is shared between us and you as customers, and what we are responsible for is what we call security of the cloud. So things like the physical infrastructure, maintaining the regions and the API endpoints, and then you as a customer are responsible for security in the cloud. So if you start creating three-tier web applications or a data lake using things like Amazon EC2, our compute service, then you are responsible for penetration testing or security testing what you create in the cloud. So there's a very clear 
separation of who's security testing what. Now, the fact that we do perform the security testing of the services and assets that we run and manage, again, that is documented in our SOC 2 report, so you can go and read about our processes and our methodologies there if that interests you. So yes, you can do security testing and vulnerability assessment and pen testing, but we do request that you seek approval. So you need to go into the portal and fill in a very simple questionnaire, and it just captures some metadata about your activity, the source and, the source and destination IP addresses of the security testing, and this allows us to basically distinguish your pen testing activity from something that might have been malicious or triggered some um, events on the AWS side. Now, for customers that don't want to seek continuous, appro continuous approval, you do have options available to you. So many customers are operating in a DevSecOps environment or maybe doing pen testing and security testing as part of a build pipeline. You don't want to keep requesting permission time and time again. So the, the two options available, you can use our cloud-native vulnerability assessment tool called Amazon Inspector. That's a host-based agent that you install on your EC2 server, and then you can schedule scans to basically identify missing patches or public vulnerabilities against the CVE database. Um, very recently, we actually enhanced that service now, so in addition to the on-host agent, it also performs a network reachability assessment. So for a given EC2 instance that might have multiple security groups or a complex network structure, it determines what ports are open to the internet and what services are running on those. So that might allow your security team to target or be more specific when they perform the penetration testing. Now, if you don't want to use our cloud-native tool from AWS, we do have a number of partners in the marketplace that is available to you. So you can go into the marketplace and launch an Amazon machine image, which will basically deploy a virtual appliance into your environment, and then you can use that pre-approved Amazon machine image to scan within your VPC. So there's a couple of different options available to you there. So those were the first five myths or cloud security questions that Phil and I very often get that come from new customers. Now we're going to dive into some questions from customers that have already really started their journey and then they're starting to become a little bit more experienced with the usage of AWS. So in the last section, I talked about vulnerability testing and security testing that very often results in patches being required. So what do you say to customers about patch management, Phil? Thanks, Miles. Uh, there is some confusion amongst our customers around who's responsible for patching which type of services inside AWS, so let me address this really directly. When you're using a, a compute platform like EC2, and you are selecting the operating system, and you have access to that operating system, then you as a customer are responsible for keeping that operating system up to date and we definitely recommend that you do. For example, if you're gonna be using Windows or Linux or another OS and keeping it running for a period of time, use that operating system's built-in update mechanisms to keep that patched, especially across monthly patch cycles. Um, when you're doing this patching, there's a few other ways that we can try to help you as well. But to be very, very clear, when you've got access to the operating system and you're launching that operating system, you're the one who keeps it patched. Another technique that some customers do is they're actually rebuilding ephemeral environments, maybe rebuilding from scratch many times a week or even a day. And when you do that, start from a known secure base patched image so that you're not constantly introducing vulnerabilities into these systems that you're automatically creating. Now, one way to do that from a known secure base image is to use our Amazon machine images or AMIs which we issue to our customers in the marketplace via a patched starting state. And we keep these images to be used as a starting state patched over time as well. 
For example, uh, the second Tuesday of the month, colloquially known as Patch Tuesday, we will update the Windows Amazon machine image that's available within five days after Patch Tuesday. And that allows you to be using that as a basis for a patched foundation of the operating systems that you're choosing to run inside of EC2. Uh, we've got a couple of different tools as well. Miles already mentioned Inspector, which is a vulnerability scanning tool. Another great tool for the application of the patches is Systems Manager, which is a remote configuration utility for EC2 and allows you to query or update a bunch of different system settings, including the application of patches. So that's a great way to be automatically both detecting for vulnerabilities in these systems you're building and automatically applying patches within uh, operating systems that are longer lived. Now, AWS does have a number of different services where we have the responsibility for patching the service itself. And we broadly refer to these as our managed services. For example, maybe you just want to focus on uh, serverless uh, a code execution. Maybe you just want to be focusing on storage or database functionality, and therefore using a service like Lambda or S3 or RDS. When you're doing that, you just need to focus on the application functionality you want from that managed service and allow us to be securing and supporting the underlying infrastructure, including the patching of that underlying infrastructure. And this is a big benefit for customers who may no longer have to patch a database engine or an operating system, which is a lot of operational overhead. So one really simple example, let's say you want to use a MySQL database. We've got two different choices. You could choose to install MySQL inside of an EC2 environment where you chose to install a Linux operating system. And when you do that, you are responsible for patching both MySQL and the operating system. You could also choose to use the MySQL variant of our relational database service, or RDS, where you get the same database functionality, but AWS is responsible for patching of that environment and securing the underlying systems. So the choice is yours. All right, Miles. Uh, this is a, a, a common one, I think. Um, some customers are concerned because they're putting data in the cloud that everybody else will be able to get access to it. So what do you talk about? Yeah, thanks, Phil. So we have a number of storage services available to you. Phil's mentioned a few of them, Amazon S3, EBS, and a couple more. So I'm going to focus on Amazon S3 for this example. So to be very clear, Amazon S3 is secure by default. So when you create a bucket in Amazon S3, which is an area of storage, or if you place an object like a file into this bucket, by default, it is entirely private and only accessible to you as the owner who created it. Now, there might be some situations where you want to have a public bucket. So let's say that you are creating a static website and you want that exposed to the internet, or if you are serving something like digital media at scale, so images and videos that aren't particularly sensitive to your organization, then I think it is appropriate to be in a public bucket. But sometimes customers and the engineers within those teams accidentally will open a private bucket publicly and then that will expose that data potentially to the internet or anyone that kind of stumbles across that bucket. So how do we help customers make good choices there? So we've implemented a number of preventative and detective controls. The preventative controls have been available to customers since we launched Amazon S3. So things like identity and access management policies, you can use as customers to define who in your organization can ever change a bucket policy. So for example, you might have an application development team that doesn't really need to be configuring S3 once the bucket's been created for them to use. So you would use IAM to restrict that group or pool of people to not be able to change the S3 bucket policy, uh, S3 bucket settings. 
Within Amazon S3 itself, we have a kind of a second line of defense in the form of an S3 bucket policy. So you have the identity policy, but you can also use Amazon S3 directly to specify the, the configuration and the settings of the bucket. Now, very recently, we made it even easier for customers where we've added the functionality at an account-wide level where you can put a set in on S3 that says this specific account should never have public buckets. So you can prevent public buckets at scale across an entire AWS account. Now, what's really cool about that is if you're doing kind of workload segregation or you have a multi-account strategy, if you know that your particular application should never be exposed to the internet, like a private internal data lake, for example, or anything, configuration files you are using internally, you can apply that private set in across the entire account, and then you don't have to worry about people making bad choices on a per-bucket level. Now, from a detective control perspective, we have a lot of visuals in the Amazon S3 console. So if you go to create a bucket and mark it as public, it will give you lots of kind of, are you sure you want to do this? This might be a bad idea. It will give lots of orange warnings kind of on a multi-step process to try to convince you that maybe you're trying to, maybe you want a private bucket, not a public one. But sometimes people will still go ahead and create that public bucket. So then in the main section of Amazon S3, we actually list your buckets um, and we put the public ones right at the top with a big orange sticker next to them or a tag that clearly indicates that they are public buckets. That allows your security team there maybe to easily identify them, perform a review, and if they shouldn't be public, you can close them or set them back to private. Now, I mentioned earlier the visibility and the automation that you get in AWS is something that you can't really, really achieve on-premise. So if you think about this scenario where someone creates a public bucket, so maybe there wasn't an account-wide setting, maybe you didn't have an identity and access management policy preventing it, or it was an administrator that had the access but was just making bad choices. So using something like Amazon CloudWatch Events or CloudTrail, you can stream these events directly to either your security team um, or into a SOC for, for review, but you can also respond in real time. So using code, you can write a Lambda function that will detect when a bucket has been made public, and then in near real time, just simply close that bucket um, to the world. Now, if we contrast that to an on-premise environment where one of your engineers maybe opens up a port to the internet, installs FTP, and puts a sensitive file in there, so kind of the same, um, same sort of situation, then in the on-premise world, it's probably very difficult for you to know that that happened. Um, it would very likely go undetected for long periods of time. You might do an annual or more frequent penetration test that would pick up that there was an FTP server, but you certainly wouldn't know about that in around 30 to 40 seconds like you would inside AWS. So this combination of visibility and real-time response and automation allows you to create these guardrails that even if something bad does happen, you can mitigate it very, very fast before the risk actually transpires into an impactful event. So, Phil, you've talked about identity, some basic principles. Many customers have questions around the secret access keys and how best to implement identity in the cloud. Sure, you got it. Thanks, Miles. So, identity is the most important security principle in the cloud. And why is that? Well, it's a different access model between what you may have been used to on-premises and how the public cloud operates. For example, in the traditional world, you built a set of infrastructure, and on top of that, installed a set of applications, and then granted other people access. And in the cloud, it's the exact opposite. You get access to an environment where you use a set of applications to build virtualized infrastructure. So who you give that access to and how you protect that access is vitally important. So let's talk about how we recommend that you keep that access uh, uh, safe. 
So the first best practice that we recommend is very straightforward. It's multi-factor authentication or MFA. I think everybody's familiar with this in general nowadays. It's like a hard token you might carry on your keys or in your bag or a soft token that you might have installed on your phone. This provides an additional uh, form of security on top of your generally static and non-changing username and password. This two-factor token will be a constantly changing extra form of credential that you're using to apply primarily to human access into the console. And you can apply that especially to the root user, the most powerful user within the IS, I, uh, uh, IAM uh, environment, but also to any other IAM users that you create. And we definitely recommend you use MFA for human access. You can also choose to use MFA on top of uh, automated or API-based access as well. And you might want to do this, for example, with a very risky, infrequently used API call where you do want to have some human oversight. The second best practice really gets back to the heart of this myth. And the myth talked about access keys being stolen. The best way to keep an AWS access key from being stolen is not to create a static access key in the first place. The way that you do this is by using what we call IAM roles. Roles are uh, objects which have permissions assigned to them, and as a user needs to, they assume this role, get temporary access to these permissions to take actions, and when they're done, that access goes away. The best part about IAM roles is that IAM roles do not create static access keys. IAM roles use temporary short-lived credentials as an extra third form of protection that go away after a little while so that anything left over in the system cannot be used by an attacker to get access back to that system. So that combination of IAM roles and multi-factor authentication are the two best ways to keep IAM safe. Those are preventative controls. So let's talk always a little bit about a detective control. And we've got a bunch of these. We've mentioned CloudTrail before, et cetera. The, my favorite one at the moment and the one I want to focus on now is Amazon GuardDuty. Amazon GuardDuty is one of our fastest growing security services ever since we launched it about a year ago. And it's our managed threat detection platform. I like to think of it very simply as a AWS cloud infrastructure focused intrusion detection system. It's there looking for malicious or suspicious activity between users, between uh, uh, resources, and between different services and alerting you if it detects anything that we have seen in the past to be bad. And it's specifically tuned to look for a number of different things, including identity and access management issues. For example, if it sees a single IAM user attempting to log into the uh, AWS infrastructure from multiple places around the world at the same time, it'll raise an alert. And then you can choose to consume that alert and act on that alert however you'd like. So that combination of protection and detection is the best way to keep your identity safe in the cloud. Okay, Miles, uh, another myth is, um, you know, when you click delete in the console, what actually happens? How can customers validate that it's really been deleted? Yeah, great, thanks, Phil. So th this question comes up a lot with customers that operate in highly regulated industries. Sometimes they either have the requirement to keep data for long periods of time, or they have the requirement to kind of get rid of data as soon as possible. So Phil already mentioned that you as customers own your content and data inside AWS. And this also extends to data retention policies like I just described, but also the ability to delete data. So when you go into the console like S3 or you, and press delete, or when you destroy an EBS volume, what is actually happening? So when we think about data deletion, it's really important to think about it as both logical data deletion and physical data deletion, just like you would do in a traditional on-premise environment. 
So from a logical perspective, what happens is when you press delete, depending on the service, if it uses object storage or block storage, AWS will go and zero the data, so essentially overwrite it with noughts and ones in a pass to be, render that data inaccessible. Or in object storage, we will remove the logical pointer to that data, preventing you from accessing it, it, accessing it again. Now, from a physical perspective, as part of the shared responsibility model, it's AWS's responsibility to physically destroy and sanitize media when it becomes end of its useful life. So what we do there is we follow the industry guidelines NIST 888, which describes the procedures that you should follow when destroying physical media. And we perform this procedure in the secure zone of our data centers. So physical assets don't leave the, the, data, the secure zone of the data center until we've appropriately destroyed them to make sure that the data is inaccessible to anyone. Now, a lot of customers will then ask me, okay, that's great, the logical and the physical data deletion, but how do we know that you actually are doing it? If we can't come into your data centers and observe this, how do we know? So I mentioned at the start that we have a very comprehensive and robust compliance program. So the, both of these controls, logical and physical, are documented in our compliance programs. So the SOC 2 is a good example. So you could go into the SOC 2 report, which is independent, um, produced by an independent third-party auditor, download the report and view these controls, um, to determine the steps that the auditor took and the result that the control was actually there. Phil, so we're talking about experienced security teams or experienced cloud users at this point. Um, they often have a lot of questions about serverless security. Yeah. What do you say? Cool. Thanks, Miles. Uh, it's very safe to say in 2018 at reInvent, serverless is absolutely here to stay. We've got customers around the world using combinations of our serverless services to be creating applications that are critical to their businesses and that are handling sensitive and uh, uh, personal information. So how do we secure serverless and how do we recommend that customers secure serverless? Again, this gives me a chance to talk about identity because identity is the primary form of security that customers interact with when they're using our serverless services. And this focus on identity is great because you get a lot of control. You get to choose who can upload code into the serverless environment, who can access this code, and which other services can interact with this code in a very granular method using the techniques that I described before, especially roles. Now, it can be a little bit of a shift in mindset for some security professionals because identity is one of the few things that you get to configure around the security controls around serverless. Almost everything else, and I'll be clear on it in a moment, is managed and run and secured by AWS itself. So it's great that you get so many options to focus on identity, um, but you need to understand what we're doing to secure serverless services themselves. Let's take the example of Lambda, probably our most popular serverless service, which allows you to take code that you create and run it inside an environment without having to manage the servers. So how do we secure Lambda? Well, first of all, Lambda gets to inherit all of the strong security controls that we've built into the rest of the AWS platform. Specifically, Lambda runs on top of EC2. So it inherits all the strong isolation that we've built into EC2 that actually Miles is gonna talk about in a little bit. When you run Lambda, what you're doing is you're running code inside of a container environment that we're managing, but that we're associating with your account that runs inside of an EC2 instance that we are managing, but that's associated with your account. Code from different AWS accounts always runs in different EC2 instances, and therefore it takes advantage of all the strong isolation that we built into EC2 itself. Uh, Lambda invocations are independently authenticated, they're authorized, 
and they're made visible to you via our common logging mechanisms. So you can get an audit trail of activity around the code and how it's used and how interactions, how users are interacting with that code. Now the limited surface area that you need to focus on is identity because we're securing the rest of the infrastructure. We've limited network access, although we do provide the other configuration option is we do provide the ability to put this in VPC or virtual private networks and to configure security groups for additional network access control. But we are patching, we're managing obviously the EC2 environment, we're patching the operating system, we're patching the container environment, and we're even patching the execution environment where that code is being run inside of. We're in taking care of encryption, and again, we're making logs from a lot of this activity available to you. So the shift to using serverless and to securing serverless is a really tight focus on identity and allow us to do the heavy lifting of securing the rest of that infrastructure. Okay, that's 10 so far of the general security questions and then the uh, service specific security questions. Let's do the last three, and these are the very specific questions we get from usually big regulated customers that are gonna really focus on data security and data privacy. Um, the first one's pretty straightforward. Some customers concerned that the government can access their data anytime. Yeah, cool, thanks Phil. So this is really, really important. AWS is diligent about customers' privacy. We understand it's important to you, and we need to earn your trust every day around this topic. So AWS does not disclose customer content unless we are legally required to do so to comply with the law. Now, where we are legally required to do so to comply with the law, it has to be following the appropriate process with a search warrant, subpoena, or legally binding order. And AWS reviews these requests to us, and where they are overreaching or overbroad, AWS will push back, and we have a track record of, of doing that. Now, from a notification perspective, we, unless legally required where we can't, so for example, when there's clear indication of illegal activity from a customer, then we notify the customer ahead of time so they can seek protection against customer content disclosure. Um, finally, as Phil's mentioned, all of the options available to you from an encryption perspective, when you encrypt your data using keys that you manage and control, access to encrypted data is essentially meaningless without the appropriate encryption key. So when we talk about information requests, we talk about um, they need to be valid, we notify customers, and you have encryption options available to you. Now, finally, we know that transparency is important here, so we publish a biannual information request report publicly available on our website, so you can go and download that and see information about the number of requests that we've received and how we've responded to those. Phil, a number of customers, particularly maybe like a line two risk function at a bank or a highly regulated customer, might want to know about how AWS can potentially access these managed services you talked about. Sure. Awesome. Thanks, Miles. This gives me a chance to talk about a really important security principle that we operate in inside of AWS. And you've heard our global CISO talk about this many times. The principle is keep humans away from data. Humans make mistakes. And the more of a chance that they have to get access to data or services that access data, it increases the risk that those mistakes could lead to uh, an impact. So how do we operate at scale? Well, we operate scale very clearly based off automation. And when this automation fails and we need to update the automation, we create other forms of automation to update the primary automation. AWS could not work at the scale that we did if these services that we're offering to you and managing on your behalf relied on human access in order to operate. That's why we focus on automation. 
Now, there are occasionally times where there's an exceptional circumstance where a human administrator does have to access this environment in order to fix something. So how do we protect that? Well, there's a series of technology controls and process controls that we apply to make sure that this has appropriate oversight and that there's good, strong security that customers are very clear about. So let's talk about the technology controls first. Probably the most fundamental technology control there is isolation. For example, uh, staff that have access to the services network to run these services don't have access to our physical uh, environments like the data centers, and vice versa. Staff with access to the physical data centers do not get logical access to the networks to configure or control these services. Now, the Amazon corporate network and the Amazon services network are two entirely separate networks with different sets of credentials. And when an administrator does have to access across this, they do so uh, in a connection that's been secured with a VPN. There are certificates and multi-factor authentication and a connection through a Bastion host. And this encrypted, secured, and limited access is then logged. And all of the activity that takes place while they have this action is logged and these logs are saved for review. In addition to this, we have a number of different process controls. Probably the most fundamental process controls is our HR uh, screening process where we do a special heightened form of screening for anybody that might need this type of H, uh, administrative access. This access is associated with tickets. If you've heard AWS talk many times about our internal processes, we're very highly focused on tickets. And an administrator that needs this access has to be associated with a ticket. This ticket has a lot of oversight to even get created in the first place. It has to be appropriate scoped, it has to be limited in nature, and uh, all of the activities that are taking during that period of time are logged. These logs are made available to security and legal for later review. And then when this access does happen, remember it's an exceptional circumstance when a human has to fix something in this environment, then we kick off a process review and figure out what types of automation we can create to update the automation so that this human doesn't have to have this direct access again to the environment. All of this is uh, recorded in our global compliance program, which will describe uh, in a little bit more detail those technology controls and process controls, which again are audited by external independent third parties, and we give a lot of detail in exactly the steps of those audits to customers. Okay, Miles, last one, lucky number 13. Nice. I'm glad you got this one. Uh, some customers are concerned that no matter what technology controls we have in an environment, that one customer will be able to bypass these and access another customer's information. Okay, you got it. Thanks. So when we talk about our hypervisor and the virtualization technology that we have, it's really two main points. First of all, experience, and secondly, our ability to continually innovate on behalf of our customers. So from an experience perspective, AWS has over a decade of experience building, running, scaling, and securing a public multi-tenant cloud infrastructure. Um, part of that cloud infrastructure, or core to that, is our virtualization technologies and hypervisors. And as of today, we run two of those. The first is based on the open source version of Xen, and the second is based on the core KVM code as part of the Linux kernel. Now, since day one of EC2, Xen has been a core part of EC2, and will continue to do so going forward. AWS was a founded member of the Zen project. Now, what that means is that our developers that kind of work on the hypervisor are really familiar with the code base, but also from a security perspective, being a founded member of the Zen project gives us advanced notifications on security issues. So when there is a security vulnerability detect detected with the Zen hypervisor, the AWS team gets notified, and that allows us to triage and determine if there is any impact to either AWS or our customers. 
And if there is, it allows us to deploy a non-disruptive fix to mitigate the issue before there's any impact. Now, over a decade of experience has taught us that building simple building blocks scale better than complex ones, and that's why we continually invest in our innovation in this space. So many vulnerabilities that are actually detected with Zen, the hypervisor, don't actually impact our version of that. Now, why is that so? So over a number of years, we've been constantly customizing our version of the Zen hypervisor, in many cases, often removing code or features that we don't use. Fewer features means less code, and less code typically means less bugs. So that's why if you go to the, Zen, uh, the AWS Security Bulletins page, when there is a Zen public vulnerability released, if you look at the AWS page, most times it will say, this vulnerability does not affect AWS on its customers. Sim um, simple like that. Now, not only just removing features from the Zen hypervisor itself, what we've been doing is actually moving a lot of these software components into purpose-built hardware. And this is our Nitro system. You're going to start hearing a lot more about that going forward. Now, by moving the software components into hardware, what that does is two things. It first of all gives you performance increases on your guest operating systems that run on this purpose-built hardware, but from a security perspective, it's an extra level of isolation between the management functions that typically was in software and the guest operating systems that you run on top of AWS. So a combination of this over a decade of experience running these hypervisors combined with what we've been doing in the innovation space around moving software components into hardware provides you as customers the assurance that the compute, memory, and network isolation that you have is sufficient to protect you or, or prevent another customer accessing the resources that we provision to you. Okay, that's the end of the myth. Phil, over to you. So that was 13 of the top questions that we get from customers about security. And these are the top five security benefits that we summarize when we talk to customers about this. The most important one for me is we engineer our systems and we build security into these services that meet the requirements of the most security and risk con uh, conscious organizations around the world. And our millions of active customers benefit from the fact that this platform has been engineered to meet the security requirements of very, very, very strict organizations. Uh, we have built automation deeply into these systems for a bunch of reasons. First, it allows us to scale, and second of all, it keeps humans out of these environments that keeps them much more secure. We also provide customers hooks into automation to allow your security teams to move at the same pace that your development teams are and to be creating automatic detection and automatic response where possible inside of these systems. Probably the only thing we didn't touch on was our partner network. Uh, we've got a large global community of security technology and security uh, consulting partners as evidenced by our security competency program. They're downstairs in the expo hall and please, there were a lot of security partners there. It was great to see it on the floor. Please go down and interact with them at some point over the rest of the conference. We're back to this really simple message, security's job zero at AWS. And I hope you have a better understanding of the things that we do to keep the cloud secure itself and how you should be being secure in the cloud. And do me a favor, if you have a better understanding now of cloud security, help us scale this message. If you understand it, go back to work and tell your colleague. If you and your colleague get it, both of you go in and talk to your boss and make sure that they understand it as well. And if you, your colleague, and your boss all understand the security benefits of the AWS cloud, go and tell your CEO. And we've got a great website that helps you do just that. This is very straightforward information aimed at C-level execs, especially those looking at making cloud transitions 
around how we're keeping the cloud secure and how you can be keeping your customers' information safe and secure inside of the cloud. We wanted to end with this quote. We started with a quote, so we'll end with a quote. Uh, Miles and I like this one a lot. And it's all about the shared responsibility model for us. AWS takes the security of the foundational infrastructure and the services that we provide to our customers very seriously. It's literally our top priority and it always will be. And you have an important responsibility as well to be choosing which services you want to consume and choosing the right security configurations for them. Please continue to learn and access all our great public documentation that has a wealth of information around all of these security features and services. And keep being curious and asking us simple or complex questions around what we do to keep the cloud itself secure. A couple last notes. Uh, first of all, your feedback is vitally important to everybody at Amazon and AWS and those of us right here on the stage right now. So on your phone, you've got an app for the conference. In that app for the conference, you can give us a rating, give us whatever rating you feel is appropriate. The second is, this whole talk is about questions from customers. So we make sure at the end we've got time to take some questions for customers. And it's a great talk to ask questions about because we did a little thing about everything in AWS security, so everything's open. Uh, please, now we've got some mics as well, I think in the middle. If you've got a question for us, we are here for a few more minutes. Go ahead. Yeah, sure, there's a mic just so we can, we can hear it, just back there in the center of the hallway. Oh, somebody's already on this side, so. Sorry. Um if a company chose to use, like, say, RDS, where AWS is responsible for patching, what steps are taken to prevent that patching from affecting a company's production environment? And what happens if a production environment does go down because of the patching? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll take it and then sure, you can you add. Yeah, so good question. And what we do there is we encourage customers to obviously have development, test, and production environments. And what we do at AWS is within the RDS console, you can specify a schedule or patch maintenance window, or you can turn off patch maintenance altogether. So what most customers would do is in their production environment, they would probably turn off patch maintenance until the development and test environments have successfully had a patch rolled over them. Um, so that's typically what they would do, yeah. So for your production environment, no patching, and then you turn it, you turn it back on once the development environment has successfully received a patch. So that's good, but what happens if production wasn't, was affected? Right, I mean, you, so you've taken steps to prevent it, but we all know that things still happen. Yeah, so if your, your, production deploy, your production database wouldn't get patched if you specify it not to get patched. So we, we will only patch the databases that you say, yes, patch my development, patch my test, but don't patch my production. And then until you've received the patches, once it's been rolled to develop and a test, and it's working with your application code fine, and you're happy with that, then you can tell us to go ahead and specify the maintenance window to patch production. Question on this side. First of all, uh, thank you. It's a great presentation. Definitely enjoyed it. Uh, a quick question on uh, AWS Guard Duty. What is the efficacy of the alerts that you see on AWS Guard Duty? Like, how effective are these alerts? Yeah, great question. So uh, Guard Duty was one of our secu first security-specific alerting services. So we spent a lot of time to make sure that we were maintaining trust with customers by making sure that these are very high-quality alerts that are based on our decade of operational experiences around seeing good and bad things in cloud environments. So they're very, very, very accurate. Uh, many times uh, customers uh, may be alerted on things that they don't feel are highly uh, a security impact. 
uh, and therefore they can assign risk ratings and we assign risk ratings to them as well. For example, one of the alerts, it notifies you if there's a new or unknown IP address that's making an API call inside of the environment. Now this might be a malicious outsider or it could just be a remote dev. So our goal is to give that information to the customers and allow you to make those decisions on its behalf. But we have a very different strategy. We've got dozens, less than 100, of different alerts that fire inside of the system that have been highly tuned. Um, we're not like some other traditional IDS products that have hundreds and hundreds of alerts and might generate 100,000 things in a day. We're trying to be much more focused than that. Yeah, what I would add to that as well is Amazon um, Guard Duty is built upon our machine learning and AI services. So what happens is when you activate the service on day one, we spend about seven to 14 days profiling what good looks like for your account. So Phil's mentioned if there was an IP address connecting from you know, another country, if that was appropriate for you as a customer, then we probably wouldn't flag it. But for another customer where they've never received that sort of activity before, the machine learn train model would, would flag that as, a, as an issue. And then you can, as Phil says, you can determine if that's impactful or if you want to mark it as a false positive. Question on this side. Uh, yes, uh, thanks for the great talk, uh, appreciate it. Um, if we have some contractual requirements, uh, so in environments where you manage the patching, uh, that the patching should be done within three days of the vulnerabilities being known, uh, are these type of specifics uh, available and, and signed contractually with you? Uh, we're very clear around what our patching policy is in our documentation. Um, and in many cases, that patching process is invisible to customers because as part of the shared responsibility model, we take accountability for it. And many of the patches that we deploy will be invisible to customers and not have any impact in these environments. Therefore, it's our responsibility to keep those environments patched. And we do have a contractual responsibility to do things that are appropriate for the security of the entire ecosystem. Uh, so, you know, I would look at our policies around patching and our statements that we're there to keep it secure. Uh, and, and that would be the support that I would look at. Uh, the only time that we're exposing any of this patch stuff is where it might be a service that has a very disruptive patching style. We talked about some database stuff before, where again, we give you tools to control when and how those patches are applied inside the environment. Okay. Question on this side. Thank you, yes, very good presentation. This is a real question coming from high ranks in my company, Accenture. Great. So, regarding managed services, like for example, serverless Lambda particularly, Typically, when you are IAS or traditional data center, you would build your architecture to cope with different SLAs, and you would try that systematically, if you do your shop correctly, to verify that the SLA committed or SLO is correct and it handles in reality. When you have a serverless architecture, let's say Lambda, but it could be any other managed service where you are providing the compute, what warranty in terms of proof, auditable proof, that you are testing these services so that we can be sure that it will match our standards of operability and availability? Um, uh, so first of all, we're really detailed in our global compliance program. That goes into both the way we build and engineer the systems, the types of controls we apply to those environments. And I think most especially if we look at our SOC 2 reports, the processes that we use in order to make sure that we're meeting our requirements. Sometimes these requirements are SLAs that are visible to customers on a set of our different services. But in general, regardless of if it's a service we offer an SLA on or not, 
the processes, the technology, and the engineering at a high level is available in there in the SOC reports. So you do have a way to validate all of the things that we're doing um, based on the global audit program. Uh, for example, it talks about in very specific SOC 2s every six months. So every six months, all of the regions around the world that are in scope, which is all of our regions, and all of the different services which are in scope, which are dozens and dozens, it's quite clear on the cover letter, has a specific named individual that's signed off on the report and detailed testing against each one of the controls with the results of that test, on which day it happened, et cetera, et cetera. So we do feel there's a lot of detail there for customers to look at to validate the engineering that we hide behind our services, and some of those services have SLAs. Thank you. This side. A question. Uh, just now you mentioned about the uh, HSM level three single tenant uh, system. Yep. Could you elaborate more on this? And does it mean that uh, no resources will be shared for that particular single tenant uh, level three thing? Yeah, Cloud HSM is very straightforward. It's a single tenant environment where uh, you're the only account that will get access to that environment uh, so that you can do a lot of different things there. Probably one of the best things there is it just gives more flexible types of encryption for different types of encryption use cases. Uh, and the fact that it's single tenant helps some customers comply in a different way. To be honest, the difference between Cloud HSM and KMS is decreasing over time as we're pulling great features from HSM into KMS and we're increasing the validation level of both of those to now. The difference between FIPS 140-2, level two and level three is, is pretty small and they've both been validated to that base level. Yeah. What, what I would add as well, I think this morning I saw on the, on the kind of the Twitter feed and we don't get ch a chance to watch the session so you probably know more about this than we do right now, <laughs> is that KMS can now be backed with Cloud HSM. Yeah. So you can store a key in Cloud HSM which is single tenant but enjoy all of the benefits of the front end of KMS around how you rotate and manage and create those keys. As of this morning, I think. Yep. Thank you. Question on this side. Yeah. Um, I think it was your myth number 12 that, that prompt, prompts this question. Uh, and it boils down to the hardware-based vulnerabilities like Meltdown and Spectre. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I'd like to know what Amazon has done uh, to address those and what you continue to plan to do because, of course, those types of vulnerabilities are still coming out. And, and does it have any performance impact? on people who use the shared services. Yeah, no, good. good. So I think what, what we've done to address those is, is a combination of kind of the, the customization and the innovation. So what we've been doing is, as I mentioned, removing the software components, putting them into purpose-built hardware that we've designed and had constructed specifically for us. I think if we take Meltdown Inspector as, as an example, because AWS is, is part of you know, various internet working groups, we actually get access to these vulnerabilities in, in, when they're embargoed, so we knew about the vulnerabilities well ahead of time. Unfortunately, at the start of the year when Meltdown Inspector came out, someone leaked them before cloud providers had a chance to address them at scale. But on the day when the leaked information came out, AWS had already patched 19, over 99% of the fleet. And then within the following day after it, um, I think the last couple of single digit percentage of the fleet was, was patched. Um, so we've got a very, we take it very seriously. We, we're, we're notified in most cases ahead of time. So before the public knows about it, we have abilities to put in place controls and patches and, and make enhancements um, for, for our customers there. Okay, no more questions. Thank you very much. Like I said before, you have choices. One of those choices is the pub crawl still going on downstairs <laughs> and there's a few security locations. So maybe we'll see you there. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.